listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. The scripture today is James 3, 13 through 410. In your pew Bibles, it's on page 982. I must admit, when I first read this, I, <laughs> I laughed a little. I thought I might have a little fun with it, so I don't know how this is going to go. Please forgive me if I don't read it quite the way you might like. <laughs> Who is wise and knowledgeable among you? Show by your good life that your works are done with gentleness, born of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, Do not be arrogant and lie about the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, devilish. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there will also be disorder and wickedness of every kind. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? You want something and do not have it, so you commit murder. And you covet something and cannot obtain it, so you engage in disputes and conflicts. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive, because you ask wrongly, in order to spend what you get on your pleasures. Adulterers! Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that the scripture speaks to no purpose? Does the spirit that God caused to dwell in us desire envy? But God gives all the more grace, therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, and your joy into dejection. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And thanks for that reading, Lord. You made, you made that fun. <clears throat> oh, man. So um, this is week seven uh, in the book of James. We're officially over the hump. We've passed the midway point uh, with this book. Um, And I gotta say, I really love the book of James. This is one of my favorite books in the New Testament, Uh, but it's been surprisingly hard to preach on. Uh, And I think I know why. I had a little aha moment this week as I was working on James that I wanna share with you all. Um, So I'm a bit of a one-trick pony as a preacher. Um, What I like to do is, I spend all week with the text, you know, analyzing it, reflecting on it, praying over it, until I discover some hidden gem. 
It could be uh, a little bit of context. It could be a word or a phrase that when you look at it from a different perspective, it like opens it up. It's, it, I look for some kind of a thing where it's like, aha, I didn't see this before. I bet you didn't notice this. And then like the sermon is me showing you all that thing that I found and trying to get you as excited about it as me. That's like 90% of my sermons. Would we say that's, that's like accurate? Yeah. Um, you can't do that with James. It, it doesn't work. He's just too darn direct. Um, this book is so practical, so explicit, so uh, to the point as it is. There's very little that's hidden. Um, I could just read this book to you out loud, and it would be a sermon. That's how James works, which makes it really hard to preach on. <clears throat> now, the passage Lori just read for us is really the heart of this book. This is the core of the book of James, where a lot of the ideas, a lot of the stuff that James has been talking about and wrestling with, it all kind of comes together uh, here in like James 3 and 4. Um, this is also, though, a really harsh section of this book. Uh, James isn't tiptoeing through the tulips at all here. Um, friendship with the world is enmity with God. To be a friend of the world is to be an enemy of God. That's pretty direct. Right? That's, that is some hellfire and brimstone, old-time religion, beat you over the head with a Bible type stuff. And yet, this is also a really important passage for us to wrestle with and understand. It's important that we hear what James is saying here and that we hear it well. If you come away from this passage thinking, I'm good, I've got it all figured out. Uh, friendship with the world is enmity with God. Got it? Uh, I'm no friend of the world. I'm friends with God. I'm on the right side. I'm good. If that's how you come away from this passage, you are missing it completely. These words should humble us as Christians. Um, they should soften us and uh, make us more self-critical. We should be humbled by these words, more open to acknowledge our own flaws. Uh, so let's get into it. Why waste time? Um, I'm going to outline this book real quick on the, on the slides. Uh, there's three sections we're looking at today. James starts out by talking about two types of wisdom, uh, two polar opposite ways to be in the world. Then he criticizes the Christians he's writing to for choosing the wrong one, right? Worldly wisdom in the Christian community. And then finally, he tells us what to do about it, uh, how to write the ship, which is so darn practical. Um, we're going to go through all these. We're going to start with the first section. But before we do, let's pray. Will you guys pray with me? Let's pray. God, soften our hearts to hear the message that you would hear for, uh, have for us in this passage. If these harsh words from James uh, trigger us in any way, if we find ourselves uh, shutting down or feeling self-righteous, we pray that you would overcome that, God, and empower us to hear the heart of this message. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You guys ready? All right. Section one, two types of wisdom. Um, we have been talking about wisdom for a year, right? Uh, in fact, it was almost exactly a year ago, October 23rd, 2022, I checked that we started the book of Proverbs. Do you guys remember that? Yeah. And I warned you that day that we would be talking about wisdom for a year, but that we'd still only scratch the surface. Something you need to know to kind of understand where we're going with this, the book of James was written in Greek. 
But James was a Hebrew. James was Jewish. Uh, and the Hebrew word for wisdom, the word James would have had in his head for wisdom is chokmah. Let me hear you all say chokmah. It's a great word, isn't it? You just want to like yell it, like chokmah. It's one of those. It's one of those. Lakayam or something. Um, chokmah. Chokmah means wisdom, but not originally. Wisdom is not the original meaning of this word. Um, chokmah actually comes from the world of work, the world of labor. Uh, think of like ancient Hebrew trade unions, if there was such a thing. You could translate it as skill or craft. It could be a trade. Think of the way that a skilled laborer spends their entire life learning and perfecting their skill. That process, that lifelong development is chokmah. Longtime members of our church are going to remember Ed Lehman. Um, he was a professor at SUNY Brockport and a former minister. Uh, when I first met him, Ed was in the later stages of dementia. Uh, and in fact, he was one of the first people um, that I had the honor to perform a funeral for here at the church. Um, Ed was also a master woodworker. Woodworking was a hobby of his that he really dove into in retirement. He was part of a local woodworking club. He had his own workshop where he would like whittle and work with wood. Uh, from my office, if I can get it out of my pocket here, I have a letter opener that Ed made by hand from wood. It's beautiful. It is perfectly smooth, perfectly balanced as I try not to drop it. Uh, the tip is actually like a little sharp. It's a, it's a letter opener. Every time I get it out, it's got his, uh, his last name initial on it. I think of him every time I have to like open a letter or something. Um, I've also got up here in the front a communion set that Ed made. It's a little plate and a cup. Uh, his family donated this to the church after his funeral. Um, you can pass this around, actually. Just take and pass, make sure, make sure I get it back. Um, but um, chokmah, right? Skill, trade, craft. You can pass this around, too. Um, this is where we get the word for wisdom. The biblical authors thought about wisdom pretty differently from how we think of wisdom today. Wisdom does not mean intelligence. It's not something that you automatically gain through experience. Wisdom is a skill. It's about the mastery of life. Approaching life the way a master woodworker approaches a piece of wood. That's wisdom. Where you spend years learning, growing, improving, becoming more and more skilled at navigating the world. James tells us that there are two different forms of wisdom, two chokmahs, two ways we can master life. There's heavenly wisdom on the one hand, and then there's worldly wisdom or earthly wisdom. Um, our Bibles, our translations actually use the word unspiritual to describe this type of wisdom. That's not quite it, though. Um, you could think of it as like a natural wisdom. Uh, the kind of wisdom that comes naturally to us as broken, sinful human beings. Think back to how you reacted as a kid when another kid took a toy you were playing with, right? That kind of wisdom. You hit me, I hit back harder. You hurt me, I hurt you. That is what James means by worldly wisdom, and he's contrasting that with wisdom from above. 
Now, James gets super descriptive in talking about these two forms of wisdom. I'm not going to read the whole passage for you again, um, but I did make a list. When I was working on this message, I took all these good descriptive words James uses, and I grouped them into two lists. Here are the words James uses to describe heavenly wisdom. Let's get those up on the slide. Gentle, pure, peaceable, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruit, no trace of partiality or hypocrisy. And then here are the words James uses to describe worldly wisdom. Bitter envy, selfish ambition, arrogant, lies about the truth, disordered, wickedness, and devilish. These are two fundamentally different ways to approach life. Two different ways you can try to master life, and both are a form of wisdom. I don't want us to miss this. Both are a type of skill you can perfect over time trying to make a good life for yourself. Envy, selfish ambition, deceit, that will take you very far in this world. You could be a titan of industry. Um, You could defeat your enemies. You could build some wealth. Heck, they might even make you president with that kind of wisdom, right? You'll leave a path of chaos and destruction in your wake but you can become very powerful. Many people do, and our tendency is to celebrate them, to hold them up. But James is calling us to a very different form of wisdom, the wisdom from above. Heavenly wisdom will also help you craft a good life, but on a fundamentally different foundation. If we are gentle, if we are pure, peaceful, if we're willing to yield, if you're willing to admit when you're wrong, if you're willing to take a step back to let go, to lose, and to let someone else win, that's heavenly wisdom. That's Jesus' wisdom. Are we tracking with this so far? Okay, nodding, good. Heavenly wisdom is probably not going to make you rich. Um, It doesn't guarantee worldly power. It's not very good for defeating your enemies, but you can build an absolutely beautiful life with heavenly wisdom. You can store up treasure in heaven the fruit of which is righteousness. And I absolutely love this line. Uh, It's verse 18 in James 3. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And by the way, an important thing to keep in mind when you're reading the Bible, anytime you see the word righteousness, especially in the New Testament, you could also translate that justice. It's the same word in Greek. Heavenly wisdom yields a fruit of justice and peace. That's like a a memory verse for you. It's really important for us to understand that James is not making a contrast between Christians and non-Christians here. Like, that's not quite it. Um, He isn't saying that if you're part of a church, if you're Christian, that guarantees you'll have the right kind of wisdom and produce the right kind of fruit. So often, when we read the Bible... And we come across a word, a word like worldly, or we read a line like friendship with the world is enmity with God, we fall into that tribalistic mindset where it's us against the world. Our way is right, our way or the highway, 
Christians have the truth and it's the world that is full of chaos and destruction. That's not what James is saying. And I cannot emphasize this enough. If that was what James was saying, the next part of the passage would make zero sense when he criticizes the Christians for having the wrong type of wisdom. In fact, I'm going to read that section. Uh, This is James 4, beginning in verse 1. It'll be on the slides. Those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? Remember, he's writing to Christians here. You want something and do not have it, so you commit murder. You covet something and cannot obtain it, so you engage in disputes and conflicts. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend what you get on your pleasures. Adulterers, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that the scripture speaks to no purpose? Does the spirit that God caused to dwell in us desire envy? But God gives all the more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. By the way, that quote at the end there, it's from the book of Proverbs, which fits, right? Talking about wisdom. James is quoting Proverbs. So meta, the Bible quoting the Bible. Anyway, Uh, these are really strong words. This is harsh. James isn't pulling punches. Um, But his criticism is is aimed at the Christians. He is criticizing the people he's writing to. He's not trashing the world and saying, stay away, so much as he's challenging the Christians and saying, why aren't you following Jesus? That's the tone of this. He calls them adulterers and murderers. Are these murderers James is writing to? Like, have they literally killed somebody? No, probably not. Let's hope, let's hope not. Um, are they adulterers? Like, literally? Again, probably not. Let's hope not. I think James is using this strong language because he knows that these Christians he's writing to are defaulting to that natural way of doing things, that worldly wisdom which sows chaos and destruction in its wake. Let's put those two lists on the screens again, uh, contrasting worldly wisdom and heavenly wisdom. Again, heavenly wisdom looks like gentleness, purity, peace, a willingness to yield full of mercy and good fruit, no partiality or hypocrisy. Does that describe the American church of the 21st century? <laughs> no, yeah. Like, like if you just grabbed a random person off the street, like a non-Christian, and asked them, like, describe Christianity for me, would they, would they lead off with, with uh, gentleness or mercy? No, probably not. <clears throat> But that other list, bitter, selfish, arrogant, disordered, well, that scares the crap out of me. Because there is an awful lot of that in the world today, and a large chunk of it's coming from the church. Uh, this is Russell Moore. I'm going to put his picture up here on the, on the slides. Uh, are we familiar with Russell Moore? Anyone know this guy's name at all? Okay, a few of us do. Um, Russell Moore is someone that I deeply respect, even though I don't agree with him on a whole lot. Um, he, he's a Southern Baptist, which, you know, uh, American Baptists and Southern Baptists don't always mesh. Uh, but even though I don't agree with him on a lot, I respect the heck out of Russell Moore. Uh, he was the head ethicist of the Southern Baptist Convention. 
until they fired him because he took a stance against racism and Christian nationalism. Russell Moore was critical of Christians who've embraced racism, nationalism, authoritarianism, and the Southern Baptists fired him. They kicked him out. He had to find another job and another church. And uh, in his book, Losing Our Religion, An Altered Call for Evangelical America, great title, um, Russell Moore writes about this growing trend we see in American Christianity, especially among white American Christians, um, where we tend to have less and less in common with Christians of other races, Christians in other parts of the world. We have less and less in common with Christians historically. And Christians in America seem to be forming our values more and more based on partisan politics and culture wars. That's emerging as our new religion. Uh, Russell Moore tells stories. Oh, you can keep his picture up there for, for a few seconds, then we'll, then we'll go off. Um, he talks about pastors who are losing their congregations because they're talking too much about Jesus. Um, he gives testimonies from pastors he's worked with who have congregants coming up to them saying, where are you getting all this nonsense about peace and mercy? Those, those liberal talking points about loving our enemies. And when they say Jesus... I'm quoting Jesus, their congregants tell them that stuff doesn't work anymore. Loving our enemies might have worked for Jesus, but it doesn't work anymore. Keep in mind, Jesus died. <laughs> you know, um, <clears throat> a number of pastors have been fired over this by churches that would rather have a leader who aligns with their political ideology than one who points them to Christ. And I've got to be honest, if you look at the culture wars, if you look at the chaos of January 6th, if you look at authoritarian movements around the world in places like Hungary, if you look at politicians who refuse to compromise, almost all of it is coming from self-professed Christians. This triggers a little crisis of faith for some of us, even pastors. There's a fear I see in a lot of the church, this fear that's gripping many Christians, a fear that we're losing. Christianity is in decline. We're losing the culture. Uh, Christians don't have the same power and influence in society that we used to. We're losing control. The complexion of society is changing, and that scares many of us. I think a lot of my fellow Christians need to be reminded that our faith is based on love and not fear. The gospel is about surrendering power, not clinging to it. I will never personally understand people who wage a culture war and yet claim to follow Jesus. Like you follow a savior who rose from the dead. You have a king who defeated death itself and you're afraid of losing an election? Priorities. You're worried you might have to give up power? That's the gospel, is giving up power. This is worldly wisdom infiltrating the church. That's not what we are to be about as followers of Jesus. The quest for power driven by envy and fear, selfish ambition, refusal to yield, that is natural wisdom. It's the exact thing James is warning us about, and it has taken over a lot of the church. So what do we do about it? Now we can go forward two slides. I'm sorry, I skipped it. What do we do about it? What do we do about this problem? 
Not a week goes by that someone doesn't reach out to me with like a podcast recommendation or an article or a book to read um, about Christian nationalism, white supremacy in the church, Christians embracing worldly power. A lot of us are talking about it. A lot of people are writing about it. But what do we actually do about it? Some people think that we need to fight back. Uh, Like I have some friends who who wanna basically just wage the culture war from the other side, fight fire with fire, you know, uh, you go low, we'll go lower is kind of the thinking. But that's worldly wisdom too, right? That's that natural response. That's not gonna work. You cannot use the same destructive chaos to chase out the destructive chaos. As someone once said, Satan cannot cast out Satan, right? That was Jesus, James gets it up here. (laughs) Kathy gets it. If you wanna see the effects of that, look at what's happening in Israel and Gaza right now. A terrorist group, group launches a terrible attack, killing hundreds of innocent Israeli civilians. And then Israel's government responds the exact same way we would, by the way, launching rockets to kill innocent Palestinian civilians. Violence on top of violence. It doesn't work. It has never worked in the course of human history. It's not gonna make peace in the Holy Land and it's not gonna make peace here. So what do we do? What is the alternative? Luckily, James tells us, right? He's so practical. Um, James 4, starting in verse 7, here's what James recommends. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, your joy into dejection. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. We're not going to solve this by fighting fire with fire. We have to model a different way, a different path, a different form of following Jesus. If you look at history, the church has been at its most compelling and its most effective in those times when Christians have let go of the struggle for worldly power and instead become a beacon of hope, pointing people to Christ and his kingdom. I think of those first Christians uh, we read about in our Bibles who honored orphans and widows when the rest of society just pushed them to the side. Um, I think of Christians in ancient uh, ancient Rome who walked boldly into the Colosseum knowing they were going to be put to death, singing hymns of praise, and offering prayers for the people who are about to feed them to lions. I think of uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of my heroes, a German pastor during World War II who led an underground seminary where he trained other pastors in how to rescue Jews and how to oppose Hitler, mostly peacefully. I think of civil rights leaders like Martin Luther King Jr. and John Lewis, both Baptists, by the way, um, who staged sit-ins and marches who would refuse to fight back when they were beaten and had dogs sicked on them. And through their witness, they forced an entire nation to confront our own prejudice and racism. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Another way to say that is follow the way of Jesus. Don't follow the way of whatever political ideology you prefer or hold up. 
whichever one you think is going to win, follow the way of Jesus. Resist the devil nonviolently, peacefully, I would add, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God through prayer and worship. Surround yourself with positive, Christ-centered community, and God will draw near to you. Cleanse your sinful heart of that desire to fire back, to hit back and defeat your enemies. I know I need to hear that one like every day. I just need that on repeat in my head. We need to lament and mourn. We need to create space to grieve the state of the American church. We need to lament and repent of the damage that's being done by so many of our fellow Christians. We need to weep and wail for the evil that's being done in Christ's name. Church, by the way, is a good place for that. And we need to humble ourselves. We've got to be self-critical. We have to be willing to yield and willing to lose. Enough practice of that, you learn to release control, let go of power. That is how you grow in heavenly wisdom. That's what it looks like to approach life like that master craftsman, to build something beautiful that will provoke change and honor Jesus. If you're looking for more specifics, uh, something even more practical, stick around after church today for gathering table and teen closet. Um, Sit next to someone you don't know. Get to know them. Listen to their story. Show them the love of Christ. Uh, Come join us at Just Desserts this Thursday at 6 p.m. We're watching uh, a documentary about redlining in Rochester, and then we're going to discuss it after over dessert. What could be more fun? But come be part of that conversation. Engage at this church. Don't just consume a 60-minute worship service once a week. Be part of this community. Help us be that beacon of light to the village of Brockport, pointing in a different way. Let's pray. God, flood our hearts with the wisdom from above. Help us to flee from the devil of worldly wisdom and to embrace the way of Jesus. Empower our church, Lord. Guide us in shining that light, showing that hope, demonstrating a different way of engaging the world as possible. And God, we pray for our siblings across the country and around the world who are struggling with this, who've embraced worldly wisdom. We pray for ourselves and confess our own complicity. Help us to let go of fear. Help us to release our need for control and power as we learn to trust you. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.